When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Anya Palmer, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Professor Jennifer Saltstein, author of Song, Landscape and Identity in Medieval Northern France, Towards an Environmental History. Published just this year by Oxford University Press, this book interprets nature imagery and true ver song in light of an environmental history and offers a new ecologically informed context for the exploration of identity formation in the period. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and welcome to the podcast. Um, so just to get us started, do you want to, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about your work and your background? Sure. Um, as you said, my name is Jennifer Saltstein. I'm, I'm a medieval musicologist, um, but I've always specialized uh, in uh, not just music, but also literature uh, and interrelationships between music and literature in the medieval period. Um, I teach at a school of music in the University of Oklahoma, and I, I teach music from the ancient world all the way through the Baroque, so uh, covering kind of a wide berth. Um, and I've always in my scholarship and my approach to teaching both uh, tried to integrate the history of music into just the history of human beings. I've always been interested in, in social history, um, in how people interact with works of art in various time periods. And so that perspective informs what I do um, in, in both teaching and scholarship. Um, my published works have, have ranged somewhat widely. They, they all tend to focus on the music and literature of France, uh, mostly in the 13th century and lopping into the 14th century, but what we often will call the, the long 13th century. Um, and uh, if my published works have covered a wide array of different types of uh, genres, different types of music and literature. Um, the work I was doing uh, as I was coming up as, as an assistant professor, uh, a lot of it was about uh, citation, intertextuality. So basically, uh, anytime when we find a song quoted in a book or uh, a little portion of, of uh, a motet, a polyphonic work uh, quoted somewhere else in another song or a work of literature, 
and I was uh, fascinated by tracing those interrelationships between um, music and literature, music within itself, um, these kind of systems of reference. Um, the reason that fascinated me was that uh, often these works were anonymous, but uh, the interrelationship between them would suggest communities uh, that were interacting with, with these works. So it was always a way to get at people and, and how people were engaged uh, with music and literature during the Middle Ages. Um, lately, uh, I've been looking at, as you say, uh, questions of environment and the natural landscape and how that figures into medieval song. Um, even as I do that, and I'm very interested in, in plants and trees and, and nature, uh, I'm always also still looking for the human, looking uh, for the ways people are describing their relationship with the natural world in song, um, what those relationships actually were on the ground. Uh, those are questions that are informing my work now. But uh, at heart, I'm always kind of wanting to do a social history of music. That's always what I'm aiming for. And so um, that's been a kind of constant throughout my work. Thanks. That's such a fabulous introduction to your work. And I think um, far more coherent than I ever could have put it myself. Um, I gave my own kind of uh, brief description of what this new book about is about. Could you talk about it yourself in a little bit um, more detail? Sure. Uh, so the book is called Song, Landscape and Identity in Medieval Northern France. Um, it treats a, a specific geography and a specific time period. Uh, so the north of France, um, areas that are currently in Belgium, uh, to, to some degree, uh, the low countries. Um, and uh, the time period is, is late 12th through early 14th century. Uh, what I wanted to get at, the title is very descriptive, <laughs> the title tells us a lot about what's in this book, uh, is that I wanted to think about people and the songs they wrote uh, that described natural landscapes, and I wanted to think about uh, how those natural landscapes they described related to the landscapes they inhabited. Uh, so uh, what was the land like where they lived? Um, and is is the way they described it accurate? Does it reflect their own experiences on the land? Um, is it related to previous literature? Is it a trope that's sort of coming back that they're imitating? Where are they getting it, basically? Uh, and so in asking that question, um, I also wanted to think about why are they doing it? Why are they describing natural landscapes, placing themselves on them? Um, and doing that uh, was a way of thinking about how land relates to identity and how people configure their identity in part as a relationship to a specific place. So thinking through that question uh, across a, a wide variety of medieval genres uh, is something I found productive and interesting. Um, the time period uh, that this book covers, uh, as I found as I started reading environmental history, uh, written by actual environmental historians whose work I find absolutely fascinating, uh, it's also uh, it's a period of climactic change. And so um, it was interesting to think about relationships between landscape and identity and how those related to broader changes historically in the way the climate was actually behaving. Uh, so those are the questions that, that motivated the book. And I explore all these through song because song is what I love best. <laughs> That's fantastic. And um, 
I wonder, you've mentioned identity a couple of times. And of course, obviously, it plays a really important part in this book. Could you talk about how you define the concept of identity in relationship to kind of, you know, uh, 13th century subjects and subjectivity? Yeah, so I I found uh, 13th century identity really fascinating. Um, and my work on this is especially informed by an article written by Carolyn Walker Bynum in 1980. It's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, it's been cited hundreds of times. People have found it just terribly insightful. Um, and this article is called, Did the 12th Century Discover the Individual? And so this is set against the backdrop of a previous scholarship that had really wanted to say that there was a renaissance in the 12th century, that the renaissance was not just something that happened in the you know, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, but actually uh, you know, there was a renaissance in the 12th century that people saw a new kind of introspection in 12th century works, a new focus on the self. Uh, so there was a desire among earlier scholarship to pull back that notion of renaissance subjectivity into the Middle Ages. Um, well, Bynum uh, said, no, no, there's something quite different going on in the 12th century. And uh, what's going on there? It's fascinating. What she says, uh, she describes very convincingly the way in which people in this time thought about identity in terms of their relationship to others. Uh, the way that they really strongly desired to mold their own identity in the image of others who they admired. Um, and that that is kind of the overriding sense in which people think of, of the South at that time. Um, and those uh, those concepts, I, I feel, are still very much at play in the 13th century. Um, my concrete example of how this works in my context is that uh, the, the manuscripts that transmit a bunch of the songs that I look at, particularly those written by knights, um, knights are, are a, a big a figure in my book, and so a lot of my songwriters were knights. Well, uh, in these books, uh, they often, in these songbooks, will give you a little author portrait of uh, the person whose song you're encountering in the manuscript. And so for knights, almost always, uh, for the 13th century Northern French songbooks, the knights are almost always pictured on horseback in full armor. Uh, some of them, you know, with their swords drawn, they're ready to lunge. Uh, and these are the images that precede often love lyrics uh, that are, you know, uh, terribly romantic in many ways. And so I haven't thought a lot about that. Uh, there, there was a famous book by Sylvia Hewitt from Song to Book, uh, which dwelt on, on the imagery of, of these songbooks and these nights. But uh, I came across some references to medieval seals. And so that's when my thinking about these things really changed. Um, I read a book by Brigitte Bezos Rezac, which blew my mind. It was fascinating. Um, but it was all about medieval seals uh, and uh, articulated very similar kind of concepts of identity. Looked at how uh, the seal imagery of the knight on horseback became just kind of part and parcel of, of how the knighthood thought of themselves, how they represented themselves. Um, they would, uh, you know, of course, use these seals to stamp their signature if they were illiterate. Um, they, you know, they were sort of an extension of their body. Um, and that they also seemed to kind of bring the person to life in their absence, that the seal was somehow directly kind of implicated uh, in their embodied person. Person. 
they would press their their fingerprints into it. They would put little bits of hair into it. I mean, I thought this was all just fascinating. But so um, that sort of made me view that songbook imagery very differently, that these author portraits of these knights were representing these knights in exactly the same way as their seals did, as knights on horseback, and that they were a kind of extension of their identity. They're strikingly uniform, and um, this is where medieval identity is, is quite different from modern identity, that there's, in fact, a desire to conform to an ideal image, and that, that um, a lot of people in this time worked very hard to embody an ideal image of the identity they wished to inhabit. So in, in so many ways, it's sort of the opposite of the current culture, the current culture around identity, it seems to me, as you know, an outsider and a middle-aged person <laughs> is all about kind of carefully curating uh, by, by collating materials from the web, an absolutely unique vision of the self, and then projecting that unique image outward. Um, this is, it couldn't be more different. This is all about finding an ideal model and working very hard to conform oneself uh, to kind of join with that ideal model and be a perfect embodiment of it. Uh, so uh, very, very different ways of thinking about identity. And this doesn't manifest in the same way with every individual that I look at from this time period. Um, there are people in my book I discuss who uh, don't conform to the kind of set variety of identities that are available to them in interesting ways. But uh, for me, it was very productive um, to think through the works of those other medievalists that are encouraging us to, to make sure we realize that there were very different conceptions of, of identity at that time. That's so interesting. And I love how you kind of uh, draw that comparison between uh, the conformity of the past or maybe a slightly more conformist vision and the kind of individuality that we tend to emphasize in the present. Um, I know you talked already about the knightly class and how important they are in your book. Could you talk a bit about clerics and um, their place in your project and in the kind of world of 13th century song making in general? Sure. So uh, clerics, um, this is a term uh, that referred very generally to people who were uh, strongly attached to the church in one way or another. I say strongly, some of them worked for the church. Uh, cleric is a term that describes, uh, you know, people all the way up the hierarchy, bishops, cardinals, uh, all of those folks. Um, it's also a term for students uh, who are basically uh, enrolled in cathedral schools or universities for their learning. So it's, it's a pretty broad group of people. Um, it's a, pe a group of people that musicologists always need to be interested in uh, in the Middle Ages because they're the most highly musically literate people uh, of this time. Uh, and so they're very strongly implicated in the production of the notated records of music that survive. Uh, so we kind of, we ignore them at our peril, I guess I would say. Um, I've always thought they were very interesting and I came across them early on in my work because I was interested in a composer named Adam de la Halle, uh, who uh, was a 13th century uh, music composer, songwriter, also one of the very first vernacular playwrights uh, who survives from the tradition. Uh, so someone who'd always been an important figure um, and who was, was believed to be a cleric, presented an image of himself as a cleric. Uh, and so often this uh, this 
particular composer was pointed to as kind of an early author figure in the vernacular uh, and viewed as kind of important in the history of French music. But as I read more about him, I, I found that he was one of kind of a, a large group of clerical author figures, uh, many others like him who were lesser known, who were kind of uh, educated by the church or associated with the church, but who wrote songs, um, often wrote love songs, which I found a little curious, to be honest, that these churchmen were kind of writing these love songs in their spare time. So it's a group I'd always been interested in. And um, to look at kind of major figures uh, who fit this mold, and then to be guided into a series of lesser known uh, clerical composers from this era was to kind of uncover a little world and a little community uh, that I was always very interested in. So uh, this book actually started, it was going to be a history of, of clerical songwriters. That's how I got into the topic. But I quickly realized there were these other themes that I wanted to, to address that their work spoke to. So it kind of grew from, from that original germ. But yes, I've always been interested in these these churchmen and students um, kind of writing these songs on the side in the vernacular as they're learning their Latin, reading their um, Ovid and, and all of this, uh, still kind of have their hand in this this other musical world than the one they're training in. Um, just because you've just mentioned it now, could you talk a little bit more about the journey from your first book, which as you already discussed, is about kind of um, refrains and citation in the vernacular and um, onto this project that's very much embedded in environmental history. Um, and could you speak a little bit more about how that kind of interest came about and, um, yeah, what you were writing in between? Sure. Yeah. So so I had intended after my first book to write this book about these clerical songwriters. And actually, it came from it, it came from the outside in certain ways that my humanities center on campus at the University of Oklahoma um, they created a new program and uh, we're going to have a seminar uh, and that they were going to choose a topic every year. Uh, and the first topic they chose was environment. And so um, I kind of looked at the call and I thought, oh, rats, I don't work on that at all. I can't do this. And then I went back to what I was doing with my uh, clerical songwriters. And of course, I saw that all of my songs were set in the outdoors. They were all, uh, you know, kind of imbued with nature imagery. So it's it's a kind of thing that had been in plain sight, but I hadn't noticed it and hadn't thought about it in that way. And so it was because of that participating in that seminar with other humanists, um, thinking about, uh, you know, issues of environment very broadly. Um, that's what kind of got me thinking about this and, and got me started on a path to thinking more carefully about what that nature imagery was, where it was coming from, uh, what was informing it, uh, all of those questions. Uh, fantastic. And you've already mentioned them, but could you tell us a little bit more about the, the songbooks and the songbooks that you're particularly interested in um, and the kind of source material um, from which the songs you're discussing are coming from. Sure. So uh, I work on a tradition that usually by scholars is called Trouvert song. Um, and that word Trouvert is not really used uh, very much in the Middle Ages. It's a kind of uh, modern generic marker that we put on these songs. 
Um, these are songs that are written in the style of the troubadours uh, of the south of France, usually better known for, for writing uh, love songs uh, in their mother tongue, um, wildly influential, uh, you know, continuously from the Middle Ages to the present, um, shaped ideas of courtly love that are with us to this day. Um, and so the tradition I look at is the, the northern French uh, version of, of that love song tradition. Um, we find it in a collection of uh, a couple of dozen kind of central sources. Uh, many of these are luxury books, song books of, you know, couple hundred pages written on parchment, uh, adorned with gold leaf and uh, decoration. These were beautiful objects that, uh, according to John Haynes, could, could cost a noble family as much as a country house. Uh, and uh, some of these survive. Uh, and so we've got these, uh, you know, carefully housed in European libraries. Um, these have now been digitized and so are available uh, to consult for anyone who's curious to look at them. There are very few that have not been digitized now. Uh, so those books uh, form my central uh, source base. There are also more fragmentary sources. There are songs that are kind of jotted into the margins of other manuscripts. Um, these uh, have kind of informed this work as well. Um, but those songbooks are are central to to this repertoire that we study, and uh, it's I should say too it's a very large repertoire. It's it's well over a hundred songs. Um, I would say only a fraction of those have been uh, you know seriously studied or or even you know performed. Uh, so it's a rich repertoire that still has has much to offer us. That's great, and. Um, yeah, I'd love to just kind of just discuss the book itself and um, and all the richness and you, it goes over three main sections. Um, and I know in your very first, you kind of lay out, um, as you say in the book, I believe you uh, lay out the land for your readers and um, you give a really detailed account in your first chapter of what is actually happening to the landscape and environment in medieval Northern France at the time. And you've mentioned this already, but could you talk in a little bit more detail about um I guess what is happening to the climate at the time and also the kind of environmental history and um, field of knowledge that you're exploring in this chapter as well. Sure. Uh, so uh, environmental history is fascinating and it's in, for the medieval period, a very advanced state. Um, thanks especially to the work of Richard Hoffman uh, and Bruce Campbell in particular. Uh, they've written these magisterial uh, works of, of uh, environmental history that tell us so much about the Middle Ages. Uh, so um, I'm very indebted to them and the works of other environmental historians who uh, can tell us all kinds of things uh, that are just to me fascinating. Uh, what you know, what is what's the regulation of hunting and fishing in the Middle Ages? What is the state of the soil uh, in northern France, uh, and how does this impact which crops are produced? Um, what is the state of the climate itself? Uh, so th this is work that informed that first chapter of the book. Um, what I can say about it is that uh, across this long 13th century, it's a really interesting time period uh, in human history. And so uh, what we can say just uh, painting in very broad strokes is this is a time of enormous population growth. Uh, so uh, the population of, of Europe uh, expands uh, really breathtakingly. <laughs> so uh, I think uh, in Northern France, from the beginning of the century to the end, 
uh, or maybe it is, let me think about this. I think it's from the 10th century to the end of my period. There's overall, I, I think, a tripling of, of the population in my region. So very, very significant. Um, it's a time of urbanization. So it's a time in which uh, cities are growing, um, where we have uh, universities cropping up, uh, you know, all over Europe. Um, populations in, in uh, cities uh, constantly increasing. Um, those cities are getting built up. Uh, so Paris famously is kind of outgrowing its original walls and, and uh, needing new walls to accommodate uh, all of its inhabitants uh, and the structures that house them. So uh, all of that uh, is, is contributing overall to uh, various measures of human flourishing. Um, there is greater peace and stability at this time than in earlier eras uh, in the Middle Ages. There have been um, efficiencies in the production of food uh, that are in part uh, spurring on that population growth. And this has a variety of causes. It has to do with tools, but it also has to do with the management uh, of, of agriculture, uh, which is, you know, in various ways, improving yields. Um, so uh, overall, uh, these environmental historians tell us that the 13th century is, is just a period of an unparalleled flourishing in many ways, uh, that by many different markers um, in, in this geographical era that I'm looking at, uh, there are just more people doing better in more different ways at this time. Um, one of the one of the reasons there are many causes and and uh, these environmental historians are quick to point this out uh, that uh, it would be wrong to take what they would call an environmentally determinist view. Um, but one of the causes uh, is that the climate is very stable uh, at this time. So uh, they're in the middle of what's called the medieval climate anomaly. Uh, this goes by different terms. This is the term that's used uh, by Hoffman and Campbell. Um, where basically atmospheric conditions are fairly settled, um, where winters are mild and rainy. Uh, this is really great for crops. Um, uh, and uh, so, so it's, it's what uh, they call a kind of climatically favored age, um, an age in which uh, these conditions are uh, one of many factors that are contributing to human flourishing. Um, and so, uh, that's sort of part of the backdrop of, of this book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And you're then kind of doing this uh, in this great move. You're connecting this to the uh, nature opening, which occurs so often in uh, Truvere and I think earlier in Troubadour's song as well. And could you just describe this a little bit and uh, talk about where you see that relationship? Sure. So uh, a lot of love songs from this time uh, begin with the songwriter uh, describing how they're going out into a natural landscape. They're walking out into a field or walking into a meadow. 
they are looking out over a kind of vista um, where they can see, you know, woods, they can see pastures, they can see meadows, they can sort of see lots of different uh, types of, of land in front of them. Um, they go out, they smell uh, the beautiful kind of sense of springtime, they feel a gentle breeze come across them, um, they may hear birdsong, and all of this inspires them to sing. Uh, so this is something that uh, occurs again and again, um, as you say, in troubadour song, across trouvert song, uh, across many different genres. Um, it's It's kind of a very recognizable uh, trope uh, uh, that occurs in music of this time. Um, and so it's something I spend a lot of time with in the book. Um, it's something that that had been viewed as as formulaic, uh, basically, that, that there was a sort of a generation of really brilliant uh, linguistic analysis of French poetry, um, really wonderful and fascinating work by uh, people like Paul Zomtor, for example, uh, the French theorist. Um, and so as brilliant as that work was, and as much as I admire it, I think it gave short shrift to this nature opening, um, viewed it as kind of mechanically recycled, as not, uh, you know, terribly interesting or, or worth pondering. Um, and so what I found as I looked closer at these nature openings is that uh, they are differentiated, um, that, that uh, nightly troubadours use them differently than clerkly troubadours, um, that some uh, songwriters intentionally write against it, they parody it, uh, or they write it in, in ways that are unique and seem to reflect uh, their own biographies, their own experiences. So um, I started from the premise, I guess, that I wanted to take these things seriously uh, and encounter them with an open mind. Could you talk a little bit about the differences you found between the more nightly approaches to the nature opening and the clerical approaches? Sure. So I guess I'll start with the clerics and I'll say that um, a lot of these figures, but not all of them, a lot of them were urban. Uh, and so a lot of them were writing uh, from the city. Uh, and so uh, the the ones I look at often were from the city of Arras, which is a city in northern France. Um, uh, there are also uh, those who write uh, from Paris, uh, so other kind of urban locations. A lot of those clerical trouvères don't use it at all, uh, or they make fun of it. <laughs> and so uh, there are songs where they're kind of, uh, you know, poking fun at this gesture. Uh, and they say, or they say, this doesn't work for me. This doesn't inspire me. Uh, so they're very self-consciously right against it. Um and so uh, that was something I, I found striking uh, that that either they were writing against it or it was completely absent from a corpus of you know a considerable corpus of songs where we might expect to find it. Um, the nightly songwriters they love this, <laughs> so we find this uh, kind of writ large across the songs of Gasprule, um, one of the most beloved songwriters of this time, and um, we find it uh, you know used uh, mostly very earnestly, uh, you know, and with great feeling and great specificity uh, and and kind of depth and texture, uh, so uh, great variety across the songs of these these nightly songwriters. Um, and then uh, there are some also who use it sort of wistfully, uh, as though uh, not fully identifying with it, but wanting to. 
Um, and and what I quickly realized looking at these as you as you look across them, that they very clearly describe the kind of ideal estate landscape. Uh, so the land uh, that was the desired endpoint of nightly violence, of nightly political jockeying, at the end point of all of that, at the end point of, of advantageous marriages, uh, lies land in a particular configuration. Um, it's the source of wealth. It's the source of status. Uh, it is it is a, a desired endpoint of all nightly activity in some sense. And so I found, um, how would I describe this? I guess I would I would say that the the songs really did speak to that aspect of nightly identity in ways that seemed very clear. Could you talk a little bit more on I guess land ownership in particular? And I'm thinking, um, I know you do a wonderful job of connecting. I believe Gasbrule was a landowner. Correct me if I'm wrong in remembering that. Um, I'm also thinking of maybe Thibault of Navarre. And um, the realities of, you know, as you've kind of already alluded to, um, the estates owned by these Trouvères and the kind of activities that they would uh, enjoy doing as landowners and how they might have thought of nature in a kind of nightly way. Yeah, so so Gasbrule, um, he did he had an estate near Dreux. Uh, there are records of this. These are records not found by me. They've been uh, known about uh, for some time. Um, Thibault de Navarre, uh, he had vast land holdings. I mean, really uh, extraordinary uh, amounts of land under his control of. Uh, so that would have been, uh, you know, very central. Um, these knights, uh, once they were in control of land, they're they're in charge of administering it. They need to manage it. Um, they need to make sure that it's it's producing uh, everything that will meet their needs. So uh, it, it will occupy them at some point. Um, we often don't know when they came in possession of this land. Uh, so uh, we'll have records that, that they possess it. Uh, we occasionally have records that they've sold it, as for example, with, with Raoul de Soissons, uh, who was a crusading knight. Uh, and like like many crusaders, the kind of the, the last thing you do before you leave uh, is you raise money. And uh, for the kind of lesser among them who didn't have as much cash on hand, that often involved painful departures uh, with land. So we have records of him selling his vineyards, for example, um, before he goes on crusade. Uh, so um, it's it's central. Um, and this, uh, this is a very well worked out area of research by people like uh, John Baldwin, um, people like Richard Cowper, who've written just such richly textured histories of these these nightly cultures. Um, and I found these really fascinating to read. But uh, what those scholars uh, will say is that, that there are record books that very clearly record uh, the names of these knights, um, battles that they've fought in, and the land that they've been given. It's all, uh, you know, kind of intimately connected there. Uh, so, um, so yeah, the landowning is, is important. It's an important part of, of nightly identity and nightly aspiration. And your fifth chapter, um discusses the pastorel, which I know is a genre you've written about before. Um, and can you just explain to listeners what the pastorel is and maybe how you're dealing with it in this chapter and in your previous work? 
Sure. So the pasteur file is a song genre from the Middle Ages, uh, of which we have uh, several hundred examples. And uh, it many examples feature an encounter between a knight who's riding out in the countryside uh, and a young peasant woman that he encounters. Uh, and often she's a shepherdess. Um, often she will have her sheep with her. She's kind of out tending a flock. Um, and so what will ensue uh, between them is dialogue always. So there's always a kind of conversation that happens. Um, often the knight uh, claims he's sort of taken with her, uh, falls for her, uh, wants to seduce her. And uh, he will often do this um, by promising gifts, promising marriage, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, sometimes she uh, will assent to this and they will go off in the bushes together. <laughs> um, sometimes she will resist it. Uh, sometimes she will call upon uh, her friends who will come and rescue her. If they have strength in numbers, she and her other uh, peasant buddies can chase off this knight on horseback. Um, there are instances uh, in which very clearly he rapes her uh, and it's unambiguous Um described often in, in pretty disturbing detail. So um, it, there are kind of a wide range of, of outcomes that can happen. Um, it, this is one of a, a small number of medieval song types that medieval people clearly recognized, uh, that the people who compiled our songbooks occasionally write this uh, designation, pastoral, uh, to indicate the genre. So it's one that they were aware of. Um, musically, it's incredibly diverse. So we have this, this narrative type that will emerge uh, in a wide variety of different song types, short songs, long songs, songs that have refrains at the end of each verse, songs that have a different refrain at the end of each verse. Um, we find it in polyphony, uh, in the genre of the motet, uh, which has many voices sounding together in harmony. And we will find uh, some of the voices uh, carrying this uh, truncated versions of this same narrative. So uh, it's, it's an interesting genre and a very diverse one. Um, it's always kind of been in the background of my work. So in my first book, I was interested in this genre in part to, to watch these refrains uh, that would occur at the end of verses. Um, and I would see that these would be quoted in other places. And so I wanted to look at the relationships between songs that were sharing the same refrain and were using the, the pastoral narrative, uh, sometimes to kind of suggest different outcomes for this little story. Uh, so uh, I was looking at it there in that book. Um, in this book, uh, I was really interested in thinking about the landscape that's described. Uh, where is she when he finds her? What does this landscape look like? It's usually very specific in the songs. So they will describe in detail uh, whether she is by a road, uh, whether she is in a fallow field, uh, whether she is uh, near a coppice. A coppice is, is uh, a place where basically people have cut trees down to the ground so that they'll sprout or sucker, and then they can harvest uh, poles of kind of long skinny uh, poles of wood to make fences or or any you know 
handles for tools, all kinds of things. So uh, these songs are kind of breathtakingly specific about <laughs> these uh, landscapes and these patterns of land usage. So I really wanted to think more about that uh, and what that was saying um, about these people, these types um, that are placed on the landscape in these songs. And I guess without putting too much pressure on um, on you to have a kind of new discovery about the pastorelle, but did you find that you kind of um, started thinking about it differently, thinking about it in you know this kind of direct context of the environment and through questions of identity as well as just the kind of more narrative aspects of the pastorelle? Yes, I would say that this chapter not to be immodest, but this chapter, I would say, is a kind of radical reversal of the way that the landscape was read in this genre in previous accounts by literary scholars. Um, there was a tendency to, to say that basically that these songs were occurring in what would have been a kind of suburban hinterland outside of a city, but not the kind of wild and rough forest. Uh, so somewhere that was kind of uh, remote enough from the castle uh, to escape uh, the prying eyes of courtiers who might see the knight's poor behavior, um, but not exactly in the wildness of the woods, uh, etc. So um, what I found is I really started investigating uh, through the work of environmental historians um, what these landscapes actually were, how they were uh, related to uh, the land as it was at this time. Um, what I found is that, well, first of all, the first thing I found was that the, the landscapes described in the song were somewhat nostalgic in the sense that they described land use practices that were in the recent past. They described a kind of patchwork of different land uses, uh, all in close proximity to one another, where you had a pasture uh, right next to a field of wheat, right next to, uh, you know, uh, orchards, right next to, um, you know, other things of this nature. And that, in fact, um, at the time my songs were being written, there was field consolidation that was becoming more common, where uh, basically you had a large communal field uh, and everyone would kind of have their plot on the communal field. Everyone knew where their plot was, um, but you didn't need roads anymore in between them. Uh, it Everything was all consolidated into one. So this landscape of the pastoral, where you had kind of roads crisscrossing through these different uh, types of land usage, um, it was the landscape of the grandfathers of the people who wrote these songs. It wasn't their landscape. Uh, it was something that was kind of in recent memory. Um, the other thing that I found is that uh, these landscapes were symbolic. Uh, they were interrelated with the identities of the characters uh, in very interesting ways. Um, and so uh, the knight was almost always associated with the forest, and that was because of the knightly association with hunting. Uh, that forests were kind of uh, the ultimate knightly status symbol. Uh, hunting in a forest was kind of the ultimate, uh, you know, aspiration of, of knights. It was something they considered sort of intrinsic to the identity they actually inhabited or the one they wanted to. Uh, so very, very strongly associated there. Um, and, and often in these songs, the knight is, is strongly associated with that forest landscape. 
Um, the shepherdess, on the other hand, um, when I looked across these traditions, um, she, uh, in many of the songs, will be uh, very aptly associated with fields, uh, with, you know, the kinds of, of landscapes where uh, you expect uh, to find people pasturing. But uh, what I found is that in those lands, in the in those songs in which the shepherdess is raped, often she's in the forest. Uh, she's in the forest. She's with her sheep. Uh, and what I learned from environmental historians is that that was a big no-no. <laughs> uh, that was in fact illegal. Often that you never would want to bring sheep into a forest because they did enormous damage to the trees. Uh, and so there were only certain animals that that uh, people were allowed to pasture in the forest. So in fact, these songs um, were very sensitive to identity and how identity related to landscape. And that certain authors were clearly using those associations to signal the coming of a transgression. Uh, and so um, this is a very, a very different way of looking at these songs. That, that was only possible for me after having immersed myself in the work of environmental historians to really understand uh, how these landscapes were managed at the time. Uh, so, so yes, I would say that that's a, a, an intervention in the field. It's such a fascinating perspective to kind of bring the the texture of these different kinds of spaces. Um, I want to pick up on something you mentioned about, you know, the landscape being the landscape of their grandfathers rather than a kind of more contemporary landscape. And um, I wanted to ask you, I guess, about the role nostalgia plays in these songs and in how you're thinking through this project as well. Yeah, so nostalgia uh, is a fascinating uh, concept to think of here. Um, it's one that it takes a lot of work to get at in this in this particular corpus. So a lot of the work I did that went into this uh, wasn't just uh, establishing more facts of biography for these different authors uh, in order to kind of place them within a chronology across the long 13th century. Um, and that was really necessary if I wanted to relate what they were doing again to the, the land that they were living on, because I had to know in greater detail when it was and where it was that they were living. Um, it's only after doing that work uh, that you can really ask, what is the attitude toward the land that we find in these songs? Not uh, just how it's represented, but uh, what is the position of the person vis-a-vis -vis the landscape? So it's only after doing that work that you can really ask, um, what are they trying to do here? And, and what is their kind of emotional attachment to this? Um, how do we understand it? And so, uh, yes, in many cases, it does seem as though uh, the attitude is actually nostalgia. It's, it's um, an, an ideal that's constructed in the present. And here I'm very influenced by Svetlana Boehm's uh, concept of, of the future orientation of nostalgia. So the way nostalgia can operate here is that uh, a songwriter can construct an idealized vision of the landscape as it was in previous generations in order to project that into the future. And so I look at this uh, in particular in, in conjunction with uh, the songwriter Raoul de Soissons, this crusading knight who I mentioned earlier, um, that there's a kind of wistful quality uh, to uh, the nature opening in one of his songs in particular um, that that I think uh, speaks to the fact that he's, he is someone who is 
absolutely a knight of great prowess, um, but someone who also seems to be somewhat downwardly mobile. <laughs> so uh, when we look at uh, the records of his property transactions and things, it's, it seems as though he's constantly selling off land, uh, borrowing enormous amounts of money from his buddies, um, that, that he's someone who kind of marries down in the end uh, after having aspired to marry a countess and, and uh, you know, seemingly almost pulled it off. Uh, sorry, not a countess, um, the, uh, the heir to the kingdom of Jerusalem. So big aspirations in terms of marriage. He winds up marrying, it seems, uh, a woman who was called Countess, but may not have had any kind of noble uh, lineage at all. So uh, he seems to to take on uh, this pose of the the knightly songwriter moved by the landscape um, in ways that suggest a more fleeting uh, connection to it in actuality. That sort of he's he's buddies with all these people who embody this ideal, but his own life has kind of not lived up to it in the way he might have hoped. So yeah, so nostalgia is important here, um, and it's something we can only get at. Um, once we really place these people in history as much as, as we can, as much as that's possible. I should say too, that these records are much more fragmentary than we'd like uh, in the Middle Ages. There are all kinds of things we'd love to know if people had just kept diaries and left them in a safe place where we could have accessed them. So, uh, so much of this, we have to intuit um, by looking at the records that, that do survive um, and filling in the gaps as best we can. I in your final chapter, you um you talk about the Ronde and uh, you particularly talk about gardens and women's experiences. So I guess this is a two pronged question. And one is, um, can you talk about this genre and how you're dealing with it? But also what the project of thinking through women's experiences. And I know you also kind of talk about peasant experiences being peripheral, maybe to these songs that are all written by highly educated and or aristocratic men in the kind of 12th and 13th and early 14th century and how you're able to access other kinds of experiences through songs. Yeah. So um, this, the, the Ronde, it's, it's a song genre. It's very diverse. Um, so much like the, the Pastorel, it has many different uh, musical versions. Um, it's short. It usually has refrains. Um, and in many cases, it highlights the voices of women or the experiences of women. So either uh, women themselves uh, kind of talk or sing in these genres, uh, or uh, we have men describing uh, women who are talking or singing. So women are very present uh, within these short songs. Um, I focused on uh, some uh, two main subsets of that repertoire uh, that really do foreground women uh, and often women in garden settings. Uh, and so uh, this is probably of no surprise to anyone who studied the history of gardens or have been curious about the history of gardens, but gardens were really the domain of aristocratic women. Um, they were given a lot of leeway to design them. Uh, they spent a lot of time in them. Uh, they're very, very strongly associated with a female noble identity. Um, these songs uh, had often been associated with the peasantry, and this, this has to do with uh, long traditions of wanting to view the refrain, uh, 
these little bits of song that travel all around in the Middle Ages that I wrote my first book about and that, that many others have studied. Um, wanting to view those as a vestige of oral song culture. So hoping that those refrains must have been uh, the lost voices of uh, medieval peasants singing songs, uh, the true medieval folk. Um, I think that, well, in my own work, uh, I've suggested that there's there's good reason to believe that was not the case. Uh, and so my first book um, examined the transmission history of those refrains and found that it was quite literate, quite stable, uh, didn't have the kind of hallmarks uh, of an oral tradition. Um, but that association with those things in peasant culture, I think, inflected the reception of their home day, this, this song genre that had these refrains that was talking about medieval women very often. And so I think there was a kind of underlying assumption that, that these were about peasant women. Um, and so bringing those songs into dialogue with garden history and environmental history um, quickly, I think, shows that that these these settings are often very clearly an aristocratic estate landscape, uh, a garden landscape. Uh, and so uh, they do speak to that kind of noble female identity. Uh, they are very much uh, kind of obsessed, you might say, with viewing, with the visual dimension. So they often uh, describe, for example, dances occurring and an onlooker will be watching young women doing a dance, uh, or the women will be talking about being watched. Uh, and so there's a kind of a dimension of the visual that inflects these things, which is uh, part and parcel of, of that garden landscape, which was all about uh, sensory pleasure and the pleasure of sight in particular. And so I read uh, some medieval theories of garden design, especially um, Piero de Crescenzi's uh, very well-known work on, on and this is one of the early works of, of landscape architecture, and it comes from the, the early 14th century. Um, but that book is, is full of instructions about how to curate views in the garden, um, you know, how you're supposed to experience the garden as, as especially a, a delight for the eye. Um, and so... Uh, rethinking that genre within environmental history um, just focused attention on the ways in which it spoke to female noble identity. Um, that's fantastic. And just, I guess, at the end of your book and your conclusion, um, you do talk a little bit about the 14th century. And, you know, as you've kind of explained already, this book deals with maybe the long 13th century or songs that are written in the 12th and 13th century, particularly. But how do you see um the ways that nature features in music of the 14th century and the kind of events that are happening then as um, continuous or discontinuous from that of the 13th century. Yeah, so so I'll say first of all that I'm really just focused on one work from the 14th century and that's Guillaume de Marchaud's Remède de Fortune, Fortune's Remedy, um, which is a book I've just always loved uh, and uh, often teach. Um, I just, I find it absolutely delightful. Um, it's a book that's been of interest to both musicologists and literary scholars because uh, in the midst of a really fascinating uh, allegorical narrative, uh, there are also songs interspersed um, within this narrative. The songs span uh, 
the gamut of, of genres that were available to people at the time. Um, they seem to uh, tell us something about different uh, notational languages that are, are coming into use. And so they've been of interest to a, a wide uh, variety of scholars for this reason. Um, this particular narrative, uh, one of the central as kind of midpoint scenes, takes place in a garden. It's a real garden, uh, the Garden Park of Esdin. Uh, it's a garden uh, that was one of the most elaborate created in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's a garden that the author, Guillaume de Machaut, seems to have visited and, and witnessed firsthand. So uh, it's it's a kind of intrusion of something very, very real within a narrative that is otherwise bonkers, that's not realistic at all. Uh, so I always found that dynamic really interesting. Um, and uh, the, the scene that happens in the midpoint there, it sort of brings back many of the themes of uh, the earlier chapters of the book. Um, basically, uh, the lover in this scene uh, is underconfident. Uh, he needs the, the help of an allegorical, a personification allegory, a woman named Hope, to kind of teach him uh, a new way of approaching uh, both love and his love relationship and his craft. Um, but uh, it's it. This all takes place within this this uh, idealized landscape that is also a real landscape. Um, it is uh, part and parcel in this narrative uh, of how the lover will come to see himself as a composer. Uh, it's sort of crucial to that development of his character, um, and and. This work is also written by an author, Machaut, who sort of combined uh, both of the identities uh, of uh, the book's third and fourth chapters, I believe. Uh, so he is he he is working in a courtly environment, a courtly environment that is the heir of the environments in which my knightly songwriters lived and worked. But he he is a cleric. He's he is uh, himself, you know, a, a trained cleric. He's a notary. Uh, he's an almoner, as uh, Elizabeth Leach uh, teaches us, um, which is the the giver of gifts. The giver of gifts, though, this is a role that is is tied very closely with with uh, male aristocratic identity, uh, going all the way back to the knightly classes of the twelfth and thirteenth centuries. So he kind of combines all of those things uh, all into one figure. Uh, and so what I ultimately argue is that that scene and the treatment of the nature opening in that scene, um, it, it reflects these long traditions, it draws on them, uh, and it shows remarkable continuities uh, with earlier centuries, uh, even amid dramatic changes. Uh, so if we look at the facts on the ground by this time, um, by the early 14th century, the medieval climate anomaly is unraveling uh, in spectacularly catastrophic fashion for the people who live, uh, you know, at this time. Uh, so um, basically, climatic patterns are kind of weakening and changing, reorganizing, and it makes uh, weather very unpredictable. Uh, and so this, you know, for an agrarian society, this is a huge problem. Um, it leads to the Great European Famine, or contributes to, it's not the only cause, but it is a, a large cause of, of one of the worst famines in human history. Um, and what I argue ultimately uh, about the connection between my cultural artifacts and all of this uh, is that once it, you have certain images of 
the land, uh, forming landscapes in the minds of, of artists, uh, once they are kind of cycled through the machine of culture and distributed widely, once people start connecting uh, their own identities to particular kind of landscape configurations, uh, that those things become resistant to change. Um, uh, that once you connect these things to identity, change becomes difficult for people. <laughs> and um, that that what we see is is continuity, even uh, when the facts on the ground are are changing pretty dramatically, um, and if anything, uh, a desire to hold on to these identities even more strongly, um, and so uh, that's those are some observations I come to uh, with regard to the remède de fortune and its position uh, as part of a, a legacy of treatment of this topic of the nature opening going back through the Trouvères. And I, I guess finally, um, thinking even, you know, further ahead than the 14th century, um, you also relate the period that you're discussing to our current kind of climate anomaly. And I wondered if just in closure, you'd um, like to talk a bit about the where you see points of difference and similarity between our present and the medieval past that you're looking at so carefully? Well, the first thing I'll say is that we don't really understand the present and we don't know what the future holds. <laughs> so we have to keep that in mind. Um, it, obviously, our current situation is part of what drove my curiosity to learn more about the medieval climate anomaly and what Bruce Campbell calls the great transition to the Little Ice Age. Um, once the climate settles down, it settles into the Little Ice Age, this, this period uh, in which overall patterns uh, tend toward you know, colder temperatures in Europe. Um, and so it, it obviously kind of prompted my curiosity to learn more about this. Um, I don't go quite to the present. Uh, in my conclusion, I do relate this to a more historically proximate example, and that is uh, Aldo Leopold's Sound, Sand County Almanac. Um, and so uh, in particular, um, I kind of relate the material of the book to his chapter July, uh, which is very famous. Uh, so the Sand County Almanac um, basically goes through the months of the year um, and uh, notes kind of ecological uh, relationships uh, on uh, the author's land, uh, seasonal change, um, his interrelationship with this uh, biotic community, as he calls it. Um, but in the chapter of July, we find uh, playful uh, imagery of medieval lordship, uh, and it shines very clearly through the text. Um, as a medievalist, it's impossible not to notice it. Um, and so I bring that, that uh, book into mind at the very end, uh, just to remind us how much our images of ourselves and our relationship to the land um, often bear echoes of the past. Uh, and I, I would imagine, you know, I'm just looking at um, medieval France and, and echoes of this in a, a modern, you know, American uh, writer in the tradition of environmental writing. But I would imagine this is true for many cultures, you know, all over the world, um, that uh, views we think of as modern ones uh, often have a long legacy that we may be more or less aware of uh, and that they impact how we uh, think about our relationships to land in the future, whether we realize it or not. And so um, if this book has something small to say about that, uh, then I'll be happy.
Thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been such a fantastic discussion. And um, I really hope that all of our listeners go out and check out your book and either get a copy or encourage their institutional libraries to get one. Um, it's a really fabulous uh, contribution to the field. And thank you so much. Thank you, Anya. It's been a pleasure.